This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. We're going to talk today about conservation agriculture. That's our first subject in Here It Now. It's a new way of improving soil productivity, nutrient efficiency, and crop production while protecting the environment. And one of the experts on this in North Dakota is Roger Ashley. He's an extension specialist at NDSU's Dickinson Research Center, and he joins us by phone from Dickinson. Good to have you with us, Roger. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, what is the uh, official definition of conservation agriculture? Well, uh, conservation agriculture is basically a method in crop production that conserves or saves the resources that we use to produce the crop while maintaining or actually increasing crop yields. And now, there are some core principles involved here, correct? That's correct. Uh, first off, um, we'd like to keep the soil covered. And by that, we mean that we'd like to see a living crop on that soil as long as possible. And when we can't have a living crop on there, at least have some crop residue. So in the case here in North Dakota where we have, have what, five, five, year, five months of... Of, uh, <laughs> of winter? Of, uh, <laughs> winter, yes. <laughs> then... then uh, we have something there to uh, maintain the soil. It's uh, it cover to keep protect it from erosion, to um, uh, maintain or extend the period of time that we have biological activity active in the soil. To that uh, does all those beneficial things for crop production. Second thing is uh, we'd like to have as little little um, a disturbance of the soil as possible. And that's where no-till comes in. And uh, we, at least here in the western part of North Dakota, no-till has a, has a uh, large uh, portion of the acreage under that already. And it's just a matter of, 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 uh, of uh, keeping that disturbance down to as little as possible. Um, the thir- third part is uh, using crop rotations and cover crops. And uh, to um, to uh, to get uh, have a, a well um, have a have a lot of diversity um, uh, that uh, in the in the in the uh, in the cropping system so that we maintain the beneficials in in crop production as well as reduce uh, the uh, non-beneficial, such as diseases and insects. Now, you mentioned that no-till is a pretty uh, widely practiced uh, soil treatment procedure, uh, particularly here, here in the western in, part, of the, in the western part of the state. Uh, how extensive uh, would you say conservation agriculture practices are in our part of the world? Well, um, in western North Dakota or our part of the world, uh, I would say we probably have more people practicing no-till than we do conservation agriculture, but we do have a few individuals uh, that are really taking to heart the crop rotations and, and, the, uh, and the keeping the soil covered. Where did the idea come from? Well, um, I think uh, the idea has evolved over a period of time. Uh, originally, a uh, thought was uh, that no-till, we could do it all with no-till, and, and uh, we've discovered that we really can't can't uh, necessarily just do that we can't do monoculture no-till it just doesn't work and uh, we've I, I know the organic uh, uh, guys have been trying to uh, to uh, they, they use a lot of diversity and and uh, and uh, rotations and, and cover crops and things like that and actually when we can combine both uh, no-till and and this diversity and and keeping the soil covered, we have a dynamite solution for, for taking care of a lot of crop production issues. How receptive are producers to the idea? Well, I, I, I think if you would have come to our no-till Manitoba, North Dakota, zero-till uh, workshop in, in Bismarck in January, you would have seen that we've got quite a following already built, uh, um, interest, very interested in in uh, doing the practice, and, and uh, we're getting more questions all the time. Are there any downsides? Well, um, I, I'm trying to. Uh, the downside, if if you if there is a downside, it does take some different skills. 
than what we would normally uh, think of in, in terms of farming. And so well, a producer needs to know uh, the um, life cycles of some of these diseases and how, how these crops react in the environment more so than, than if they just went out and planted. But is somebody who's practicing conservation agriculture going to have the same yield, uh, the same cost, the same amount of time to do well, the job? Actually, the ones that are really pra- are practicing it actually have reduced costs. They, their input costs go down. Uh, you, uh, some of the research that's been done recently uh, on, on nitrogen fertilization in spring wheat, for example, by North Dakota State University points to a 50-pound credit for, for no-till. If you have five years or more continuous no-till, uh, there's a 50-pound credit. That means 50 pounds less nitrogen that you would have to put on uh, in order to get, get the same yield that you would if you use tillage. And, um, and so that, that's the cost savings. Also, um, cost savings is, uh, is in fuel uh, costs. Uh, fuel continues to go up. And uh, in a no-till operation, we're generally able to get by, by on about a third to, to um, a quarter of what, what a uh, tilled operation can. That would be pretty so significant, we, yeah. Yeah, well, so we get, we get some cost savings there. Uh, we also have some savings in, in uh, pest control. When we include these rotations, uh, we find that we don't need as much many fungicides to apply uh, to the crop to get, get the same yield or same qu- yield and quality. And, uh, and same way with insects. We have a little insect called uh, wheat stem sawfly in the, that uh, affects uh, wheat production uh, some years worse than others, but we find that if we uh, manage a residue properly, that is, leave it intact, in place, upright, um, we actually have the uh, pet, that particular pest problem doesn't exist as long on, on that particular field as what it does, say, on a field that has been tilled. What is uh, your... Uh, operation, the, the Dickinson Research Center studying in regard to improving and, and extending the practice of conservation agriculture? Well, uh, Dr. Pat Carr, along with uh, the, uh, Chris Nichols from Man, the Mandan ERS, as well as Rebecca Phillips, are looking at, at uh, ca- uh, storage of carbon. And that, when we talk about stor- storage of carbon, we're talking about organic matter, how that is stratified in the soil or where where we find find that those um, organic matter in, in soils, and they've they've their research has been pointing out that uh, under a no-till uh, cropping system, you know, one that with diverse crops, that actually um, we can get that organic matter to increased organic matter even down at that three to four foot depth, and uh, <clears throat> when we do when we can get Increased organic matter, we have higher water holding capacity. So, uh, and when we have higher water storing capacity, uh, we have the ability to produce uh, more yield, withstand some of these dry, dry, dry periods uh, longer. And so, it's uh, pretty exciting stuff. Does the NDSU Extension Service want to convert farmers to uh, conservation agriculture, or, or, or simply offer the information? Well, we, we basically offer the information, and and uh, and uh, if 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 they're interested in, in it, we're we'll, we'll provide it. And and uh, but uh, it's it's really up to them what what how they want to operate their particular uh, program. Well, is conservation agriculture taught as a preferred production method at NDSU? I I think uh, it is, and uh, you look at also. Uh, Dickinson State University, they're uh, teaching a lot of the concepts there at DSU. So it's 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 definitely finding inroads in the uh, in the education community. Uh, there's some very good science, very good science behind it. How long would it take for a North Dakota producer using traditional farming practices now to apply the the three core principles that uh, kind of that? Uh, 
minimal soil disturbance, uh, a top permanent organic topsoil cover and crop rotation uh, t- uh, and, and fully benefit from conservation in agriculture. Okay. Well, assuming that they, that they have the equipment already in place and that they can convert to these rotations immediately, it would take a, at least the so- soils take about five to six years to respond or to, uh, to um, begin to take on those beneficial um, aspects of conservation agriculture. Of course, things aren't quite that easy. Uh, when you go from one system to another, there's always that, that uh, problem of how, how we get, get the crop rotations to, to uh, work these crop rotations into, into the system because you don't do that overnight. You've got to uh, gradually um, go into that system, system that way. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, we've, we've got some long-term uh, no-tillers, uh, 20 years plus, that, uh, that are very close to what you would consider as con- uh, adopting the conservation agriculture, and it basically it would be Change, just changing some of their some of their practices, introducing a little more ro- crop rotation or a little more diversified crop rotations to to um, to uh, move into into the and receive all the benefits of this conservation agriculture. In deciding these crop rotations, are the optimum one for a particular field or farmer? Uh, is that something the Extension Service helps with? Yes, we we can help with that. Uh, there's also uh, you. Um, there's some other other um, things, that, uh, other places they can go. Um, the Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Association has some some excellent materials available. Uh, recently, they published a, a uh, manual called uh, "Beyond the Beginning: The Zero Till Evolution." It discusses uh, uh, this crop, these crop ring rotations. Um, those are available either through the association or f- through NDSU. Um, there's also um, uh, the um, crop sequence calculator uh, available from the Agriculture Research Service at Mandan, um, and there's also a, um, a uh, sheet uh, that uh, it's called I think the Power of uh, Crop Rotation uh, that is available on a on a, on a NRCS website here at, in North Dakota. So there, there's some excellent tools available to help producers move into that diverse rotation. Uh, I, I did some online research, as I want to do. I came across an awful lot of information about uh, conservation agriculture, and a fair amount of it was under the, an organization that's uh, 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 associated with the United Nations, talking about applying this in, to you know, small farm operations in developing countries in particular. So that prompts a larger question. Can conservation agriculture practices reach the yields necessary to feed uh, a population that will be uh, significantly larger? I mean, uh, 6 billion people in the world in 2000 and probably over 9 billion in 2050. Well, uh, considering the demands for those resources that are needed to raise raise food, uh, food required for to fill feed six billion or seven billion or people. Um, conservation agriculture is probably one of the, um, uh, the most likely uh, means or ways to do it, do it uh, rather than some of our traditional ways. And so, yeah, the uh, food food and agriculture organization has been a big advocate for for um, for conservation agriculture, and I would expect them to continue to be uh, be in that. Uh, do that um, uh, kind of thing. Something that uh, may be of interest to, to uh, your listeners is that there is the uh, Sixth World Con- Congress on uh, Conservation Agriculture will be held in in uh, Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, in Canada there. And um, that, that's uh, June 22nd through the 27th uh, in 2014. And Open to not only research scientists but also to um, to farmers. We actually would like to see farm farmers attend this program because they'll they, they'll 
get a great deal out of it. Well, I noted uh, that the theme for that uh, Sixth World Congress on Conservation Agriculture in Winnipeg in June of 2014 is Soil Health and Wallet Health. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that one, uh, I, I'm sure, will uh, register with farmers. Uh, yeah, that should. <laughs> you mentioned uh, some equipment differences uh, in terms of uh, doing conservation agriculture. What would be the significant ones for producers in North Dakota? Well, um, instead of having field cultivators and discs and harrows and, and all the implements for tillage, uh, basically we're, and, and as well as a uh, drill uh, here with uh, in conservation agriculture, no-till, uh, we'd need a no-till seeder or di- uh, drill or, or planter. And, uh, and anybody that's gone out and priced a, a drill or planter recently understands that that's a very um, extensive investment. And, uh, <clears throat> but uh, rather than investing in a lot of tillage equipment, uh, they'd invest in, in a good drill and probably planter. Is there been any pushback from farm implement manufacturers and dealers, or can they, uh, can they sell other equipment that would kind of offset uh, the loss of tillage equipment, for well, example? Well, the thing about, about uh, with the reduce, reduction in tillage equipment, we're seeing uh, more, uh, actually better sprayers come out. Uh, a lot of these are uh, sprayers have, have GPS and auto steer, and, and they act, uh, actually apply the correct amount over every square foot of that's um, uh, where applications need to be made. So, so that the, the, the implement they are. I don't think conservation agriculture is going to put implement dealers out of business. <laughs> I don't think they're going to put uh, ag, agricultural input. Um, uh, suppliers out of business. It's just going to be a it's going to be a little bit different uh, mix of what they're what they're selling today. Are there any uh, North Dakota producers who would not benefit from conservation agriculture? In your opinion, I well no, not really. I I think most producers could uh, all all crop producers would certainly would, and even even those with uh, uh, the the ones actually that. Um, produce both crops and livestock would probably even benefit even more. So have you run into any resistance from people about this idea? Oh, we, I always get questions. Well, we thought that that had been done years ago. Well, um, when I drive between Bismarck and Fargo, there's definitely a lot of land that's still under cultivation or still cultivated extensively. And, uh, so I think there's still a lot of room for uh, adoption. Is there anything that could be done policy-wise by the by the state, for example, the legislature or the state ag uh, uh, commissioner, to encourage more interest in this this practice? Well, I, I think uh, continued support of of, uh, of education, uh, continued support of. Extension activities, continued support of, of research activities will certainly help um, um, people adopt, adopt these kind of things. Um, uh, it's not, it's, it's not going to be something that uh, switches on and off overnight. It's, it's just not. So we, we, we uh, in, their, in our particular system or that, um, we, there's other things that are beyond the state state's control as to the rate at which some of this some of this is is um, is implemented um, <clears throat> we look at other countries such as as uh, Argentina and uh, Brazil and they have uh, they were a little bit slow on on implementing uh, conservation ag or, or no-till practices uh, cropping systems and you just look at what's happened in the last, just the last few years where where the uh, producers were really having to learn and struggle and think about how, how to do things uh, more economically. And, and uh, they've got a fantastic rate of adoption uh, you know, in the no-till uh, cropping 
systems or, or conservation agriculture. Roger Ashley is an extension specialist with NDSU's Dickinson Research Center. He will be giving one of the Red Roof presentations at Chateau de Mora's Interpretive Center in Medora. The title of his presentation, Conservation Agriculture, Sustainability into the Future. And uh, it's Saturday, this coming Saturday, March 9th at 2 o'clock Mountain Time. And light refreshments follow. Thank you very much, Roger, for sharing this information with us. Thank you very much, Doug. We'll be back with more in a moment. Support for this program is provided by the North Dakota Education Association, an organization of 8,000 school employees working to ensure great public schools for every child. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with Believe, performances by Celtic Woman. Then at 9 Central, we see beautiful handmade glassware being crafted as we go behind the scenes at the Blenko Glassworks. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, Poitin, the band from County Fargo, doing a little uh, classic Irish. Well, you know, uh, this week's natural North Dakota essay comes to us from Chuck Laura, as usual. He works at Dakota College in Botno, and this essay is entitled Lignite Coal. With all the news about the oil boom in the Bakken Formation in North Dakota, we may occasionally need a reminder that North Dakota lignite is a major source of energy in the state as well. Although most North Dakotans are well aware of the coal mines and associated power plants in the Beulah, Center, Stanton, and Underwood areas, I suspect that relatively few among us have a good sense of just what lignite is. The Lignite Energy Council's website defines lignite as a dark brown to black combustible mineral formed over millions of years by the partial decomposition of plant materials subject to increased pressure and temperature in an airless atmosphere. Lignite is a form of coal that's not been under enough heat and pressure to make hard, high BTU coal such as anthracite. It's generally considered to be the lowest grade of coal and is classified as lying between peat and the harder, higher BTU bituminous coal. Lignite's a soft, rather crumbly coal that is a brownish black and is occasionally referred to as brown coal. It has a high water content, which can range from around 35% water to as high as 60%. It also has a reputation of occasionally spontaneously combusting, which makes transporting the material problematic from an economic as well as safety perspective. North Dakota lignite formed during the Paleocene from swamp peat about 65 to 55 million years before present. At that time, much of western North Dakota had a climate and vegetation that was similar to the forested swamplands of Florida, with bald cypress, figs, cycads, and palm trees. As happens today in swampy areas, when the plants died, the material began to accumulate at the bottom of the swamp. However, the decay of that plant material is often incomplete, in part due to lack of oxygen. So, over time, the organic material accumulated and was eventually covered over or buried under new mineral sediments. Over the next several million years, with some pressure and heat on the organic material, it was transformed from peat to lignite. There are currently four lignite mines operating in western North Dakota, and the largest lignite producer in the nation is the Freedom Mine, northwest of Beulah. Most of the lignites used to generate electricity in nearby coal-fired power plants, with smaller amounts going towards the production of synthetic natural gas. I'm Chuck Lara. Natural North Dakota is supported in part by the NDSU Central Grasslands Research Extension Center and Dakota College at Botno. You can read and hear today's story at prairiepublic.org. Coming up, a discussion about sequestration with NPR's business editor, Marilyn Gwax. But first, the news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. An ex-bookkeeper of, uh, for the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America's Northwestern Minnesota Synod is accused of embezzling more than $600,000. 61-year-old Robert Larson of Wolverton, Minnesota, has been charged with felony check forgery and theft of corporate property. Court documents say the money was stolen between 2004 and December of 2011. Most of the money was used to pay for improvements to Larson's home. This is Clay County Attorney Brian Melton. I can't think of any other larger uh, embezzlement 
settlement cases, largest I've ever seen, and largest I think that Clay County's ever seen. This really is uh, a large-scale, long-term uh, embezzlement case where, uh, unfortunately, it just wasn't discovered for a long period of time, and he took a great deal of money from the Senate itself. If Larson is convicted, he faces up to 100 years in prison and a $500,000 fine. His first court appearance is scheduled for March 19th. The president of the North Dakota Education Association is watching the issues related to sequestration. Dakota Draper says if the cuts are allowed to stand, there could be some serious consequences for North Dakota. I've heard two things that will be immediately impacted. One is the Head Start programs around the state. I've been told that they will receive a 5.1% immediate hit as of when sequestration began. And another area that will receive a 5.1% impact would be the uh, schools are affected by impact aid from the government, the federal government. That would include a lot of your Native American schools and the schools that are tied to the two uh, Air Force bases, uh, Minot and uh, Grand Forks. Draper says at this point it is uncertain how those cuts could be handled on the local level. He says it could come down to layoffs or furloughs of educators. Draper says there could also be a series of delayed cuts to title programs for North Dakota schools. He says those impacts may not be realized until the next school year. I was told at one time that if sequestration is fully implemented and nothing's done, what we will end up with by the start of the next school year is that we lose 72 positions here in North Dakota in terms of educators who work with uh, special need kids and those uh, title programs. Draper says there has been some talk taking place among state lawmakers about the cuts, although he has yet to see any plans emerge. And Secretary of State Al Jager is asking the legislature to propose a constitutional change concerning when petitions for initiated measures need to be filed with his office. Currently, the Constitution says the petition needs to be submitted 90 days before an election. Jager wants to change that to 120 days. That would allow the Secretary of State's office 35 days to review the petition, uh, 10 days for a sponsoring committee to challenge any decisions that we have, but it also allows the Supreme, Supreme Court uh, 20 days in which to review any challenges and, you know, before the ballot has to be certified. The measure will be heard on Wednesday in the House Judiciary Committee. If it passes both chambers, it would be on the ballot in 2014. Last year, supporters of a measure to allow medical marijuana use challenge uh, challenged Jager's decision to keep the measure off the ballot due to election fraud. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public, and as you probably heard, we're a few days into something called sequestration or the sequester. It happened March 1st, and it wasn't supposed to happen, but it did, and now everybody's talking about it, so we are too. Marilyn G. Wax is senior business editor for National Public Radio. She joins us uh, from her office uh, today to talk about what this is and what it means to our economy and perhaps to us as well in North Dakota. Marilyn, thanks for joining us today. Hi, I'm very glad to be with you today. What is sequestration, first of all? How is it distinct from cutting the budget? Well, just just to clear up in case anyone's confused about that word, you know, it's such a strange uh, word to use for this, but remember that uh, we've often heard of things like where they sequester the jury. It just means to be able to legally set something aside for some legal good reason. And what Congress uh, did was set up this process where it would set aside the money that had already been appropriated. So there was money that had been appropriated for this fiscal year, and the fiscal year that the government runs on it, it starts October 1st. So we're already almost halfway through the uh, 2013 fiscal year. I, I used to work in a, in a Minnesota uh, government uh, organization, and occasionally that state would run into budget problems, and they would actually pull back a piece of the budget from the current fiscal cycle. And that would happen maybe six months into it, which would make it twice as bad. That's essentially happened here too, hasn't it? Yes, right. So we're already halfway through this year, and all of a sudden – you know, this uh, sequester was supposed to actually start January 1st, but because Congress, everything was so mixed up around Christmas time, you may remember we were all talking about a fiscal cliff, and that had to do with uh, the expiration of a bunch of uh, uh, tax uh, bills that had to get either renewed or they would expire. So that got so complicated that the White House, Congress, everybody agreed to move that 
January 1st deadline to March 1st, hoping that they would have enough good sense to straighten things out during January and February. Well, oh, wait, I said the phrase good sense. That does not (laughs) prevail here in Washington. So now that brings us to March Madness, Washington style. So we started on March 1st with this idea that the money that they were going to set aside in a sequester, uh, instead of doing it January 1st, they set it for March 1st. They couldn't come to any agreements about it, so now it has taken effect. And because it's delayed uh, quite a bit, it makes it even more severe because now you have to squeeze a lot of budget cuts in between now and the end of September. So that means a lot of uh, furloughs, a lot of uh, job cuts, and we'll see how that starts to percolate through the system. Well, uh, eventually, I guess we're going to understand whether it qualifies as a self-inflicted wound, as some people have described it, or as a spot inspection of the nation's ability to cut spending. Well, it's it's a strange way to go about doing your business, but uh, the reason this is a difficult situation for, for a lot of uh, government agencies and workers is because if, if you think about it, these are across-the-board cuts. And that means, I mean, if you just used your basic common sense, if your family was told that you have to cut your spending by some percent, let's say 5%, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't send in short the, your mortgage. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to send in for your car and your house payment. Just make up a figure and cut it across the board and hope the banks understand. Probably the bank wants you to pay the mortgage in full and they want you to pay the car in full. And you want a roof over your head and you want to have a way to get to work. So you might say, wait a minute, it wouldn't make any sense to to, uh, mess with the mortgage or the car payment. We'll cut out this year's vacation. Or maybe we'll just trim, uh, we'll cancel the HBO service or whatever. You'd make trims that make sense instead of trying to cut every single bill by 5%. Unfortunately, Congress has not had the ability to reach any agreements about let's cut out the vacation. So they've said, all right, we're going to take a buzzsaw and just give everything a haircut straight across the board. And that means uh, they're having to cut things whether they seem essential or non-essential. They're all getting buzzed in different ways. And you might say, well, this doesn't seem like much of the overall budget, But keep in mind, big parts of the budget, in fact, most of it has been set aside to be um, untouched. That is Social Security and Medicare, those kinds of entitlement spendings. Those are, uh, for the most part, held harmless. They're not involved in this. So you're really talking about discretionary spending, and that's what hurts more because it's uh, not only is it coming late in the fiscal year, but it's concentrated in certain areas. So even if we were taking a generalized haircut where everything was getting trimmed across the board, if we had started that back on October 1st and really did it across the board, it wouldn't be that dramatic. It's that it's focused and quick that could inflict a lot of pain. Last week on uh, NPR's Talk of the Nation with Neil Conan, you actually brought up another wrinkle, the knowns and the unknowns, and you (laughs) talked about choke points and you used meat inspections as an example. Yes, uh, let me just talk about that for a moment. The, this, you, you might say, what, what is the economic harm of this? First, let me just say that most economists, I mean, overwhelmingly, the most typical prediction is that this will shave half of a percentage point from growth. So instead of growing, say, by 2.9% this year, maybe the economy will grow by only 2.4%. Now, that may not sound like a huge amount, but keep in mind that kind of a reduction probably means three-quarters of a million jobs across the country. So for a lot of people who won't get jobs, that's pretty painful. Um, but if you, if you look at that level of economic harm is based on the idea of how many people are going to get furloughed, how many people are going to get cut. But it doesn't fully capture this notion of choke points in the economy. So let me give you an example of that. To get a piece of meat onto my plate for me to eat for my supper tonight, it would be I need a whole big bunch of people to get together. We need people to have grow, you know, corn to feed the cattle or get grass for them to graze on or whatever happens for somebody to get a cow to uh, a meat packing plant. And there are lots and lots of people involved in that whole process, truckers and uh, 
butchers and all sorts of people. But in the end, the last person between that meat and the grocery store and my stomach is a meat inspector. It's, it's required that meat be inspected. So if you lay off one, the, the meat inspector, you could say, well, that's not much economic harm. That one person's salary isn't all that great. But how great is the economic harm if I can't get my meat because it hasn't been inspected? So now the grocery store is hurting, I'm hurting, restaurants are saying, hey, wait, where's the meat? They might have to raise prices. Uh, There could be shortages because of these choke points. So whether you're talking about the air traffic controllers, the uh, meat inspectors, those kinds of places where you need to have um, uh, some sort of government clearance, and there's just one worker standing there. It might just be, maybe at your small airport, you have a TSA, you know, worker who has to clear people coming through. And you say, well, that's just one salary. But for the people who are trying to get on that flight, they really need that TSA worker to be there. So we could see these kinds of things take on a bigger life as we start to cut these jobs, and we'll see just what are the unknowns here, just how much does it ripple out. And since this is pretty uncharted territory, we'll have to see how it turns out. Well, what is the stock market telling us about sequestration so far? They closed at a record high. Oh, did I mention that March Madness thing? (laughs) 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 So let me try to explain this one. Oh, brother. Uh, You know, I I was just at a convention of economists today. Uh, Here in Washington, the National Association for Business Economics had its annual gathering in Washington. And I was listening to a lot of the economists talking about what's going on out there. And there was a pretty big sense that a lot of people feel like they're just over it. They're just so sick of Washington. There have been so many fiscal cliffs and so many potential problems that everybody's just starting to ignore it almost. It's like cliff fatigue or... um, you know, maybe we're just whistling past the graveyard or whatever, but it's almost like the economy wants to take off. For example, cars, you know, the the fleet age out there. Most people have not bought a car in recent years. The average of age of a car is like 11 years, uh, has 160,000 miles on it. There's a lot of pent-up demand. People need new cars. And also all those energy jobs you folks are creating out there in North Dakota and all the fracking stuff in Pennsylvania, Ohio, a lot of people need pickup trucks. A lot of farmers need new equipment. They've bought more uh, farmland. So we've got a lot of pent-up demand, and then the housing market is coming on as well. Some construction workers are being called back. So people are out buying vehicles, and the auto industry is looking pretty good. The energy industry is looking pretty good. All that snow that's been falling, maybe that bodes well for crops this year. Um, you know, there are things happening in the economy that could be seen as very positive signs. So everyone's just trying to almost like stick their fingers in their ears and walk past Congress going, la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, among those business leaders that you were hobnobbing with uh, and, and, and the economists you've been reading up on and talking yes. to as well, uh, is there consensus on a path out of the fiscal problem that got us to sequestration as opposed to the political problem? What is the you economic know, solution? It, it's just overwhelmingly true that every economist that you talk to, is you really have to look on the fringes to find anybody who thinks there should be only one path forward, that only we cut spending or only we raise taxes. I, I mean, among mainstream economists, I mean, I, I cover economics. I don't cover politics. I don't have opinions. I'm just telling you what the economists tell me. And when I sit through their presentations, overwhelmingly, I mean, overwhelmingly, virtually everyone says there has to be some kind of a balance between we need some more revenues and we need some a lot more cutting. So somewhere, somebody's got to give. Uh, there's got to be more of a compromise that is worked out that somehow comes up with a, a more balanced approach. That's what economists say needs to be done. Now, politically, that's somebody else's business. Uh, I can't uh, talk about the politics of it in terms of, you know, everybody's got their opinion. But the consensus among economists is there should be something that involves some more revenues and a lot more cutting. Well, investors and business people don't like uncertainty. And our economy does seem to be recovering slowly from the Great Recession. Could sequestration fuel another dip? 
Yes, I mean, the, the, as I say, with these choke points where you really don't know exactly what's going to happen, if, for example, let, let me just give you one example. I was talking yesterday, I actually called this guy up, who had taken some photos at the Salt Lake City Airport where the TSA lines were super long. Some Apparently, according to him, the TSA uh, workers told him that they were um, uh, it didn't get their overtime hours assigned. It was the end of a skiing weekend. Lots of people were trying to leave, and it got really jammed up at the TSA lines for a while until it sort of smoothed out after Monday morning. And he took some photos of these really long, snaky lines. And I reached out to him. I actually got in touch with him uh, and said, hey, I saw you were posting some pictures of these long lines. How did it affect you? What did you think when you got caught in that big, long line? And he said... If I have a non-essential trip, I just am not going to plan it. I don't want to travel again. This was horrible. I was in line for an hour instead of 15 minutes, and it was really chaotic, and it was very unpleasant, and I don't want to go through this again until I'm sure the TSA has worked out its problems. Well, that was one guy at one airport. You know, that's not going to change the economy. But what if a month from now, during the peak of Easter travel and spring break and all of that, there are these long lines, and all of a sudden everybody's like, you know what, I just don't even want to plan a vacation because I don't want to go through this. You start that snowballing where instead of having an upward spiral like we're starting to see in the economy, you touch off a downward spiral where people say, you know what, I'm not going to take that spring break after all. Um, and then all of a sudden that ripples out to hotels, it ripples out to restaurants, you know, one thing after another. Now that's just you know, a hypothetical situation. We don't know that yet. But my goodness, after all these years of this terrible recession and very slow recovery, um, why on earth would you want to make put any any burden on an economy that is trying so hard to take off? It's a very odd timing for Congress to try to put a weight on the back of the uh, economy. Speaking of which, we've only got about 30 seconds left here, but we have another important vote at the end of this month. March Madness. <laughs> the, the continuing resolution <laughs> runs out March 27th. Uh, are, are you betting on a continuing resolution? Well, that's the thing is because we have a strange way of doing business. We don't actually have a budget. We have a continuing resolution of old budgets. We haven't had a new budget done uh, since 2009. So every year they can't really agree on a budget, so they just do what they call a CR, a continuing resolution. And and they usually do it in these chunks. This latest one uh, ends after six months. So that means on March 27th, it expires. So they the government, like the whole government, could shut down unless they extend a new uh, CR. So there is some hope that in the coming days and a couple of weeks here, they may try to work out some sorts of compromises that would make uh, the take some of the roughest edges off the sequestration, maybe tone it down a little bit in various ways, and then combine that with a new CR to get us to limp through till September. And one would hope that over the summer they will finally put together a real budget for 2014 that will start to clear up a lot of this uncertainty. Well, here's hoping. Marilyn G. Wax is NPR's senior <laughs> business editor, shedding some light on the dark side of sequestration. More here at now in a moment. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. Here at Now would like you to contact us if you have comments, questions, or guest ideas. Give us a call at 1-888-755-6377 or write us at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. And, you know, there's a very big thing coming to the University of North Dakota later this month, the UND Writers' Conference. And now we've got uh, some essays that are being produced for us by graduate students at UND about various writers that will be featured in the conference. And Alex Cavanaugh has his essay today on Nick Flynn. Nick Flynn is a writer who works in poetry and prose nonfiction in both forms with the ability of a lifelong reader and thinker beyond his years. Once an electrician, ship captain, 
caseworker with homeless adults, and now a teacher and father, Flynn uses his writing to explore the mystery and power of memory, honesty, and history. His second memoir, The Ticking is the Bomb, explores the intersection of self and art. Here are some selected passages. Proteus. Proteus lives at the bottom of a steep cliff, down a treacherous path, at the edge of the sea. From the top of the cliff you can see him, lolling on a flat rock, staring into the endless nothing of the sea, but to reach him is difficult. You've been told that he has the answer to your question, and you are a little desperate to have this question answered. As you make your way down, you must be careful not to dislodge any loose gravel, careful not to cry out when the thorns pierce your feet. You must approach him as quietly as you can, get right up on him, get your hands on him, around his neck. You've been told that you have to hold on while you ask your question. You've been told that you can't let go. You've been told that as you hold on, Proteus will transform into the shape and form of that which most terrifies you in order to get you to release your grip. But the promise is that if you can hold on through your fear, he will return to his real form and answer your question. As we drive slowly past the burning house, when a siren, police car, fire truck, or ambulance punctured my Saturday morning cartoons, twisting the blue from the sky, my mother would tell me to go start the car. Let's see what's happening, she'd say, and we'd drive to the place where the sirens called us. Afterward, we'd drive to the coffee shop in the harbor, and I'd go in and order her the usual, cream, no sugar, while she'd wait in the car. She'd worked in that same coffee shop when she was in high school. It was where she met my father. I don't want to give them anything more to talk about, she'd once told me, to explain why she'd send me in alone. After I'd come back with her coffee, we'd drive to the beach, sit in the car, look out at the Atlantic. One day she told me she was thinking of marrying a carpenter she'd been seeing for a couple months. Travis wants me to marry him, she said. What do you think? Travis was just back from Vietnam. Ten years younger than her, ten years older than me. I'm eleven. A nice enough guy, but a little wild. That's a mistake, I tell her. A couple weeks later, Travis is living in our house. After they're married, my mother and I still drive toward our burning houses. Travis never joins us. Maybe he's never invited. Once we drove past the house of a woman who'd killed herself. No siren had announced it. Maybe we read about it in the paper. Maybe we heard about it from a neighbor. But still we got in the car and drove slowly past. It was a house I'd never noticed, though I'd pass by it every morning on my paper route. The windows now curtained shut the grass already overgrown. Work song. Here, God said, here is your cup full of days. If you don't believe in God, you still get your cup full of days. Some will be spent making love, some will be spent high, some will be spent reading Ulysses, and some will be spent alone. Some will be spent around a table, a meal about to be passed, a steaming bowl of rice, some sautéed kale. It's someone's birthday, Someone you have known for ten, no, twenty years. To your right is a woman you slept with seven years ago. At the time, you thought it might work out, but it didn't. Across from you is the woman you are with now, and at this point it could be forever, whatever that means. Some of the days you are given will be spent in a strange city, and at the end of the day you will know that you have spoken to no one except the girl you got your coffee from, no one except her. There will always be days like this. Nick Flynn will give a reading at the UND Writers' Conference on Wednesday, March 20th at 8 o'clock p.m. in the Memorial Union Ballroom. That's Alex Cavanaugh, UND graduate student. Dakota Date Book is next. You can take Prairie Public's news and entertainment with you wherever you go. Download Prairie Public's free radio app to listen on your iPhone, iPad, or Droid. This is Dakota Datebook for March 5th. An unbelievable USO sighting occurred on this date over the Minot Air Force Base in 1967. Unbeknownst to many North Dakotans, the state has proved fertile ground for UFO sightings for several decades. In fact, the state even has a connection to the first UFO sighting in history when the term UFO was first coined. That 1947 event began over Washington State when pilot Kenneth Arnold spotted nine unidentified objects flying near Mount Rainier. 
Arnold's report led reporters to term the entities Unidentified Flying Objects, or UFOs. Arnold himself grew up in Minot, attending grade and high school there during the 1920s and 30s. After the initial description and media coverage, UFO sightings became much more common. In response, the Air Force created a catalog of UFO sightings in an attempt to chronicle and explain the phenomenon. Referred to as Project Blue Book, the catalog documents dozens of UFO reports from North Dakota, most taking place near the Minot and Grand Forks Air Force bases. The UFO sighting on March 5, 1967, took place only three days after two sightings were reported near Mohall and Velva. Then on March 5th, Minot Air Force Base security teams were alerted when Air Defense Command radar detected an unidentified target descending over the Minuteman missile silos of the 91st Strategic Missile Wing. When security police responded to the call, they saw a large metallic disc hovering over the missile silos. The disc was ringed with bright flashing lights. Before F-106 interceptors at the base were scrambled, the UFO left the silos, moving first over the launch control facility, then climbing straight up into the air before taking off at an incredible speed. Between the years of 1967 and 1968, a number of UFO incidents occurred at or near the nuclear missile sites in North Dakota. One eyewitness, Lieutenant David Schur, claimed in interviews that a brightly lit UFO hovering near missile sites in 1967 was responsible for initiating a launch sequence at the Echo Launch Control Center. Once the glowing object left the vicinity, Schur activated the launch inhibit switch to cancel any possible launch. Robert Hastings, the professional UFO reporter who interviewed Schur, called the interview one of the most disturbing of his career. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Jamie Job. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota yep. Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Yesterday on Hear It Now, we uh, offered some free tickets to an upcoming production of the Harwood Prairie Playhouse presentation of Ken Ludwig's The Fox on the Fairway. It's a funny farce. And these tickets would be for Friday, March 8th, showtime at 7.30. It's at Dawson Hall, located at Bonanzaville in West Fargo. And we're going to change the rules a little bit. So anybody can email us right now at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. We'll put all of your email messages into a drawing, and we've got lots of pairs of tickets to draw, so there's a pretty good chance you're going to win. So send your request for free tickets to hearitnow at prairiepublic.org, and uh, we can send you to the show on Friday. Well, first, the faculty at the Family Therapy Center at NDSU developed an award-winning LGBT affirmative training program. Now they've received a grant to share that program with other service providers in the region. And that's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. On Here It Now, we'll talk with Tom Stone Carlson, coordinator of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at NDSU. In the meantime, the storm's over. It's starting to melt a little bit, so have a very good evening.